Well, if you would, uh, open up your Bibles to uh, 1 Peter 5, that, that song that was sung, uh, uh, Jesus, I want to know you and I want to know you more, um, uh, is such a good song for us to sing and to make sure that's a heartbeat of what we are. And the way that we know about who Christ is, is we, we open up his word and uh, uh, the infallible, inerrant word of God, and we seek to endeavor each and every week to know who Jesus is more and more and more. The goal of Sunday morning is not to know who we are more and more and more and more, but to know who God is. And then as we seek to, to know more who Christ is and the holiness of who God is, we will figure out who we are really fast. Um, and we will understand and see the, the sinfulness of our own heart and our need of a Savior. And so our goal every morning when we open up the Word of God is to know and understand the Scriptures, who God is and who Christ is. And that song was just a good reminder of that. And we're studying... 1 Peter uh, chapter 5 right now, as we've made our way through this book, and we are, we've hit the topic of shepherding the flock of God, shepherding the flock of God. And so let's just start by reading uh, verses 1 to 4 together, and uh, this morning we will finish up this, kind of, this section on shepherding the flock of God. This is what it says. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter is descending down, if you will, on this letter, kind of wrapping up his final thoughts, and he comes to this section finally on leadership. And he addresses the leadership through the analogy of the shepherd and sheep, or shepherding and flock, and he uses the words very clearly, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's really a perfect analogy. It's one that we've looked at uh, over the last couple of weeks, noticing that uh, sheep are directionless, sheep are docile, sheep are dependent, sheep are defenseless, and sheep are in need of a shepherd. And the shepherd's job then in the role of the shepherd is to lead the sheep, to feed the sheep, to know the sheep, to protect the sheep. And the whole history of God's people can be traced using the metaphor as God as their shepherd. In fact, you can go all the way back to Genesis when Jacob said in Genesis 48, 15, that the God who has gone before me and my fathers Abraham and Isaac, the God who has been my shepherd all of my life. We're probably most familiar in the Old Testament with Psalm 23. Uh, maybe you have it memorized or even, even uh, posted maybe on your refrigerator or somewhere around the house uh, of David's wonderful psalm. Uh, that starts out with this, the Lord is my shepherd. And God uses this analogy all throughout the Old Testament and all throughout the New Testament. And what I want to do this morning is kind of trace this idea just for a little bit for us to get to where Peter got to in 1 Peter 5. I think it's important. So this morning might sound more of a, a lecture. When was the last time you guys were in school? Some of you guys are like, man, this is a long time ago. I take notes. Is there a quiz? Is there a test? Some of you are like, I am in school. I don't need another lecture. Well, 
let's just do this together this morning. Have a, a little bit a time, a little bit of a history lesson here, getting us to this point. Because it's important for us. Peter didn't just make this concept up out of nowhere and expect us to understand it. It's one that is woven all throughout Scripture. And the first thing we need to understand is this, is that in the Old Testament, God would mediate his shepherding through servant leaders. The way God would shepherd his people was through servant leaders throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 77, 20, it says this, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This was the way that God would mediate his shepherding would be through servant leaders throughout the Old Testament, beginning with Moses, through Aaron, and then ultimately it would be through a king. And, the, and the Israel said, hey, we don't have a king, we want a king. So they went out and they chose their own king. Their own king was King Saul. You guys know this? Saul ended up being what? an absolute disaster for Israel because they decided, hey, let's line up the people. Let's find the guy that's the tallest. Let's find the guy that's the strongest and let's make him the king. And that ended up being a disaster. When God chose his king, who would be next, he chose who? A rugged what? Shepherd boy named David. And David became the shepherd of God's people and he would rule as a man who was even told, we were even told, was a, a man after God's own heart shepherding the people of God. After David, there's multiple kings that followed. You know, eventually that the kingdom of Israel would be divided in, in the north and to the south, and there would only be, uh, for the most part, by and large, but maybe out of a couple, all wicked kings who would shepherd God's people. Until finally, after generation and generation, till finally judgment would come to Israel. Eventually Israel would be destroyed in the north first and then in the south into Jerusalem. They'd be deported into Babylon. You know, the stories here starting to come to mind about what happened here because you had wicked rulers ruling over Israel. You had bad shepherds, bad leaders. Until finally, God would say this through the prophet Micah. He would say this, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. And we looked at this last week. Eventually, God would say this in Ezekiel 34, 11, the Lord would say this, I myself will be their shepherd. I will search for my sheep and take care of them. If a shepherd is with his sheep when they began to wander away, he will go and search for them. In the same way, I will search for my sheep. What Israel needed was a shepherd to care for the flock of God. Eventually, the Lord would come and do it himself, and he will come and do it again. But for the first time, he will come and set the example of what it is that the, that the leadership within the church would do to care for the flock of God. He would do it himself. The Messiah would come. And we know this in John chapter 10, because we looked at it together in John chapter 10, a few weeks back where the Lord would say this, I am the good shepherd. Twice he would say, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. What is he saying? I am the one who will set the example for you to know how to care for the people of God. It's interesting when when Jesus came and he was ministering to the people, 
what he would find out pretty quickly. In Mark 6, 34, he says this, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and when he had, and he had compassion on them. Why did he have compassion on them? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Somebody needs to lead the people of God. Lead the people of God as Jesus led the people of God. He would say the same thing in Matthew chapter 9, 35 to 37. In that one, he would say the people were hurting because they were sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus would be that shepherd to them. Jesus would be the one who would lead them and guide them and teach them. He would be the one who would protect them. He would be the one who would set the example for them. But as you know, eventually, after Christ would die for the sins of the world, he would go into the grave for three days. He would rise again, proving himself to be the Messiah, proving himself to be the good shepherd. Eventually, after that, he would ascend into heaven, and the good shepherd is now back into the heavens. Now, what are the people of God to do? Who are they to follow? Well, once again, Christ would mediate his shepherding through servant leaders, and this time it would begin with the 12 disciples, or 11 and then 12. He would mediate his shepherding through the disciples and through the apostles. Pastoring, shepherding, overseeing the church would come through the apostles, and then in Acts chapter 2, you have the formation of the church. At the formation of the church, what would the apostles and the disciples do? they would appoint elders in the church. So the elders then would provide the shepherding. The elders then would be the ones who would look to the example of Christ, who would look to the example of David, who would look all the way back to the example of Moses, all these people who God would mediate his example of shepherding through so that the church would know this is what the leader is like. This is what the leader should be like. This is what the elders should do. Now, I want you to see this with me because I'm not making this up. Look in, look in the book of Acts so we can see how the apostles would commission and establish elders. And I want to show you a few of the churches in the book of Acts and in Philippians where we can see this in Acts chapter 11. You have the church in Antioch that had elders in the church. Acts chapter 11, verse, in verse 30, it simply says this, And they did so, sending it to the elders, plural, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. That's the church in Antioch. Turn over in Acts chapter 15. At the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. It says, But some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless, verse 1, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So it's in the church of Antioch, it's in the church of Jerus in Jerusalem. Look over in Acts chapter 20 and verse 17. says this, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said, you yourselves know that I lived among you the whole time on the first day that I set foot 
and Asia. So you have it in Antioch, you have it in Jerusalem, you have it in Ephesus. Turn over to Philippians uh, 1, verse 1. Some of you guys are like, wow, we're really moving through the Bible here. You guys remember the yellow pages where it used to say, let your fingers do the, the walking? Some of you guys are like, what's yellow pages? Just kind of feel like we're just letting our fingers do the walking. Philippians 1 says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are out Philippi with the overseers, that's the episkopos, that's the, the word that's used for elders. We'll see that even in 1 Peter uh, 2. And deacons, different offices, but overseers of the church. So church of Philippi. Turn over one more place to Titus. Keep going to the right in your Bible to Titus, or scroll up, I suppose. To Titus chapter 1. We mentioned this, but I want you to see it with your own eyes. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete. Titus 1 5. So that you might put what remained into order and what? Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So you can see then. How in each church that was established in the New Testament, the governing body was the elders within the church and the deacons within the church. And there's a difference. If you want to know the difference just uh, between an elder and a deacon within the church, you could, you could say it like this. Elders serve by leading. Deacons lead by serving. Elders watch over the spiritual health of the church. The deacons take on more of the task of, uh, of hands-on approach to the serving within the church, but there is a difference there. In Acts 6-4, you can see that the deacons were even established so that the elders could continue in prayer and ministry of the word. As elders would oversee the spiritual matters of preaching and counseling and praying and oversight of all the ministries, deacons would lead in the physical needs of, of food, shelter, clothing, helping widows and orphans, waiting on tables for communion. And there's different roles within the church and the structure within the church. But nonetheless, the Lord has given us a blueprint by which the church is to be led. And so you have this authority that's passed down from Christ to the disciples, the apostles, and now down to the elders and deacons within the church. And the way then that Jesus shepherds his church now is through those men mediated through those men. And it is a team. Just to be clear, it is a team. It is not one man. Not one man runs the church. Not one man gets sole power within the church. Every, every word we read about elder was in the plural. It's elders, 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 elders. Now, I, I bring this up, and I, may, I want to make this clear to us, because the way the modern church is ran today is with CEOs. A CEO business mentality. Let's make the church a business. Now, there's some principles of business that can certainly be applied to the church, but when that's the driving force of the church, it's lost its entire role and function within the church for the leadership, and that is to shepherd and care for the flock. It is switched entirely over. In fact, one person said that if you try to run, the, run a church like a business and you have a CEO mentality, the pastor can act like the owner and that members act like customers, customers within the church, consumer mentality. 
What will you give me? What will you do for me? How can I consume this product that you're giving to me? And if I don't like it, I'll just go find another church business to go to. The pastor acts like uh, middle management. He could treat the congregation like employees. The CEO mentality can have the members act like stockholders and treat the pastoral staff like employees when that's not at all anywhere within the Bible of how a family, the church of God, is to be treated. One article I read this week on it, a guy by the name of Brett Younger says this very clearly. He says the CEO model doesn't work. And here's why. Listen closely. It keeps the church from having any spiritual depth. And it keeps the minister from having any real depth. Pastors also cease to be ministers of the word and sacrament when those styles of ministry dominate. While the minister's role should be about leading others to belief in Christ and into, other, and into ever-deepening faith, the CEO approach instead puts the focus on the institution. The church itself becomes the focus and purpose of faith. The same guy, he goes on and he says this, as the culture stopped supporting the church, the preaching became more about institutional success and less about the experience of God. The demand for the CEO-style church leaders subsequently rose as attendance and membership declined and threatened the institution. And then finally, he says this about this type of approach. He says, a CEO approach works if your goal is to get more money and bring more people in. But then you have ceased to bring depth to people's lives. I simply say this, the CEO model doesn't work because it's not biblical. <laughs> it's not biblical. It's not the blueprint for leadership within the church. God's given us a blueprint for the church. Why are we trying to amend it? Why are we getting up to the line of scrimmage and calling an audible on it? Just run the play. God's called to play. Just run it. Just snap the ball. Run the play, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's going to work or not. That's not up for you to decide. It's, it's, it's the church's role and responsibility to just follow God's word and run the play that he's given to us. And the play that he's given to us is this. He has set for us elders and deacons to be overseers of the church, to do exactly what Peter has called us to do. And what has he called us to do? Shepherd the flock of God. That's the role and the responsibility, the only role and responsibility of the pastors. Shepherd the flock. Concern yourself with depth. Concern yourself with the spiritual maturity of the church. Don't concern yourself with the reach. Concern yourself with the depth. Make sure God's people love Jesus Christ. Make sure that they can sing the song, I want to know you more and more and more and more. That's the concern. Let the Lord worry about the depth. Let the Lord worry about how many people come into your church. And find a pastor that cares more about your souls than he does about how much money is coming through the church. 
Find a pastor that cares about whether or not you're walking with the Lord and you're getting fed the Word of God than how many people are in the church and how many services there are. And if we can move to a Saturday night or a Thursday night, if we can go online, if we can have this huge audience, who cares? That's not the blueprint. The blueprint is this. Shepherd the flock of God. And you want to know what the context is here, church? The context is heavy persecution. The context is hardship. The, con- the, the context here is, is Nero blaming them for a fire. The context here is that Christians are getting pelled, skinned, and burnt alive and placed in his gardens to light up all of his, his fancy uh, houses and gardens. That's the context. What do these people want? Do they want a businessman? Do they want somebody that's concerned about how many people are coming into their homes? And, and, and No, what are they concerned? They want someone to actually love them and care for them and shepherd them. Someone who's going to feed them the Word of God. Somebody who's going to encourage them. And listen, that hasn't changed. And if we just run the play, God's going to take care of everything else. And so this is the context of which Peter has said, shepherd the flock of God, do what you've been called to do, lead them, feed them, care for them, protect them. This is your primary role. Now we've talked about this in the midst of shepherding. The primary role of shepherding is feeding the flock. Just to remind you, what what good is it to protect them if you're starving them? (laughs) What good is it to know them really, really well if you're starving them? What good is it, uh, right, to, uh, to be a shepherd and, and to lead them, but if you're starving them, what, what's the point? And so what's the primary role of the shepherd to feed the sheep? In fact, I don't know if you caught it, but when we read uh, in Mark uh, 6.34 uh, what Jesus said, he said he went to the shore, he saw a great crowd, and when he had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd, and then what did he say? And he began teaching them. First thing he did, he began teaching them. We need to know Christ more. We need to know who God is. We need to know those truths so that in the midst of hardship and difficulty, we have been equipped to handle hardship. And so this word there, we finally got there to 1 Peter, by the way. So that we got here, verse 2, it says what? Shepherd. That word is an imperative. It means this, do it now and do it continually. You don't, get to have, you don't get to have days off. You don't get to have weeks off. You don't get to have months off. You, you, you need to do it. You need to continually do it. You need to care for the flock of God. And we talked about this before. It's the flock of God. It's not the flock of the pastor. It's the flock of God. It's Christ's church. It's, it's God's people. And so the shepherd then is simply an under-shepherd to the chief shepherd. He, he gets a, a portion of God's flock that he gets to care for, that he gets to oversee, that he gets to love and feed and know and take care of. And with that comes great responsibility. One person says this about the implications of a pastor thinking that they are his flock. He says this, each church 
that could be ours, talking about pastors, if it could be ours, it would be only a false church. So the sheep are not ours for us to use or misuse as we like. If we lose one, we lose another's property, not our own, as he is not indifferent to what becomes of the flock. And so the church is God's flock, God's people. Christ died for the flock, and Christ mediates now his shepherding through servant leaders within the church. There's a couple of things here we need to look at that I want to show you. The next phrase there, the shepherding the flock of God among you, it says then this, exercising oversight. Episcopos, it's where we get the word overseer. And, and the question then is this, is that different than shepherding? Is exercising oversight different than shepherding? And, and I would say to you this, that exercising oversight is an extension of shepherding. It's a part of shepherding. Shepherd elders are to oversee the church. It is all the same function, except, and, and Alexander Strauch helps us with this. He says this, the term shepherding and overseeing are often closely associated because they are similar in concept. In this passage, overseeing is equivalent to shepherding. Shepherding is the figurative expression for governance, while overseeing is the literal term, which can be used to clarify the first. To shepherd the flock entails oversight of the overall supervision and watchful care of the flock. Of the two terms, shepherding conveys a richer, more vivid image than overseeing. And he goes on to say what we've been saying for a while. There's an amazing likeness between will shepherds and sheep and God's shepherds and his people. The shepherd flock vocabulary communicates the skillful, loving, sacrificial image of the type of leader-follower relationship that benefits the Christian community. So exercising oversight then is simply an extension of shepherding. As a shepherd would have a, an overlook over the entire flock, but then he would also have a portion there which he would know and feed and protect on a more personal basis. And it is the duty of the shepherd to have oversight over the entire flock, especially in the midst of suffering. And I want to be clear here just so we... We, we understand this, and uh, is that there is no such thing as a, a ruling elder and a shepherding elder. There's no distinction. They, they are one and the same. To be a shepherd elder is to be a ruling elder. You can't separate them and say, well, I'll just do the business side as an elder, and I won't do the shepherding side of an elder. There's nowhere in the Bible that even speaks of that. They're one and the same. Pastors and elders, shepherds, they're all the same. They use the same, and you can't separate the two. If you're not shepherding uh, the flock of God, then you're not doing your job as an elder. You're not doing your job of overseeing the flock of God. So you have then this. Number one, you have this, the primary role of the shepherd. That's all we just talked about, and every other week we came to that. Let me give you the next, the next one then. The primary role of the shepherd, now you have the motivating attitudes. Here's the motivating attitudes of the shepherd. What drives the elders to do this? Well, Peter wants to make sure we're clear on this, and he gives us three statements, and they, they start in the negative. Number one is this, not under compulsion, but willingly. Elders should not feel as though they have to shepherd. They don't feel like they were drafted into it against their will. It, this word here, it, it, it describes the state of being compelled to perform 
some action by force or by constraint. Out of obligation. Friends talked you into it. Family talked you into it. Kind of got your arm twisted. And you're like, ah, okay, I, I think I'll become an elder. Well, listen, in the midst of suffering and hardship, and your heart's not in it, the last thing the church needs is somebody compelled to do something against their will when it involves caring and protecting the flock of God. The elders have to be motivated by a desire that is within them, I believe, a God-motivated desire to get messy with the sheep, to care for the flock of God. In fact, it says there, willingly, not under compulsion, but willingly. They're not doing it because they're forced to doing it. They're not doing it because they're pressured to do it. There is no obligation. In fact, the word here has to do with hilarity, joyfully, as if God has given them a spirit of joy. Uh, the, the word could even be translated this, according to God, or as God would have you do it. This is how they would lead. This is how the elders are to lead within the church, not feeling like they have to do it, but they do it because they want to do it. They do it because they're happy to do it. It is a joy to do it. And again, I believe this is a spirit-filled, spirit-empowered attitude. This is a desire from God. Can't see them doing anything else than shepherding God's people. Look with me, if you would, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's time for you guys to get those fingers working again. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This, these are the qualifications of an elder. Now, Peter doesn't talk about the qualifications of an elder. That's not the point of what he's trying to get at, but he wants to make sure that the elders who are there are doing what 1 Peter 3 says, qualified. But the first thing it says, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, this, is a this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Circle the word aspires. If he aspires, it must be a desire within themselves. It is a sad thing when a man is coerced into eldership because it has to be spirit-empowered. In fact, before you even get to the characteristics, before you even get to the qualifications, there must be a desire there, and it must be willingly Right? We all know what it's like to be forced into a job you don't want to do. <laughs> In fact, there's, maybe that's your job. Is what, that's what you do every day. You're forced into doing something you don't want to do. Right? Your heart's not in it. If you could do something else, you would. This is exactly what he's saying here. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Secondly is this. Go back to 1 Peter. Not only under compulsion, but willingly. Secondly is this. As God would have you. Right? As God would have you, that's, that desire is from God, willingly. But then it says this, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. What is he talking about here? Some, some say not for sordid gain, meaning this, he doesn't have a love for money. Money doesn't control him. In fact, it says it even back in 1 Timothy 3, 
Uh, verse 3 says he's not a drunkard, he's not violent, but gentle, he's not quarrelsome, and he's not a lover of money. It's also in Titus chapter 1 in verse 7. He's not doing it because he desires to, to fatten his own pockets and get rich. Or you could say this, he doesn't want to fleece the flock. He wants to care for it. The sole motivation for caring for the flock is because there's a desire to love them and care for them, not because they want to have a get-rich scheme to make a lot of money. That's not the motivation. I heard of a story of a pastor who, it doesn't matter his name or the church that he goes to, but it was his, uh, his wife's anniversary and so he thought it'd be nice to buy her a $200,000 uh, Lamborghini as a gift. $200,000 Lamborghini. My anniversary's coming up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> For a long time, you heard the, the slogan uh, on commercials that would simply say this, for the love of the game, right? For the love of the game. You play for the love of the game. You do it for the love of the game. The same way that's, it is for the pastor, shepherd, elder is this. You do it because you love Christ and you love his people. That's it. It doesn't matter about anything else. Everything else will take care of itself. The Lord's going to take care of you. You do it for the love of the church. You do it for the love of Christ. You do it for the love of the flock. Not, as it says there, for shameful gain. But what? But eagerly. You're motivated by an eager desire to pour into the people. An eager desire to see them grow in Christ. An eager desire to shepherd as Christ shepherd, shepherded. And look what it says in the next one. Number three is this, what? Not domineering, but as an example. You're not domineering over them. You don't do it because you want some sort of authority or some sort of power over other people. You don't want to have people come underneath you and then you just drive them. In fact, we even talked about this, that a shepherd doesn't drive from the back. What do they do? They lead from the front. Because that's what they do. They're not trying to, in some way, demand for compliance. In fact, that's not even how Christ led in Mark 10, 45, it tells us that, that Christ came to be a servant and a servant of all. It says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, what do you need to do? You're supposed to get as low as possible in service to one another, not lording over it as the Gentiles do. The elder has no room for lording over people, but living a life that is Christ-like, setting the example entrusted to them. And so that's what he said. He's not domineering over those in your charge. Instead, though, what does it say? Be an example to the flock. The word there has to do with an impression. A model, a pattern, a mold, which clay or wax was pressed into to make the exact shape of the mold. So shepherds have a spirit-filled impression on the flock. They set the path and the course. They lead the way. They lead the flock. I like what William McDonald says. He says this, look at this, this quote, he says this, many of the abuses in Christendom would be eliminated by simply obeying these three instructions in verse two and three. 
The first would be, uh, the first would abolish all reluctance. The second would spell the end of commercialism. The third would be the death of tyranny in the church. Right? It's as if God knew what he was doing when he established the church. But with that is this, number three, the highest accountability of shepherds. The highest accountability of shepherds. Look what it says. And when the chief shepherd appears, okay, we can't skim past that. When the chief shepherd appears, what does that mean? That all the shepherds are going to be held accountable for the way they took care of God's flock. Okay, listen to this. With the highest responsibility comes the highest accountability. They're shepherding God's people, and he's going to come back for his flock. He's going to come back for his people. And the elders and pastors are going to stand before the Lord, and they're going to give a unique account for the way that they took care of God's flock. In Hebrews 13, 7, it says this same thing. In fact, look over with me, if you would, just turn in your Bible to the left, just a couple of pages back to, the back, to, to Hebrews. In Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Look down in verse 17, Hebrews 13, 17. All eyes on Hebrews 13, 17. What does it say? Obey your leaders and submit to them. For what? They are keeping watch over your souls. As what? As those who will have to give an account. An account will be given to all the shepherds, the false ones, the good ones, the faithful ones, the bad ones, every single shepherd will give an account because the highest responsibility demands the highest accountability. And when Jesus Christ returns, every single shepherd will give an account for the way they took care of the flock of God. Similar to what was said to us in James chapter 3 and verse 1, where teachers will incur a stricter judgment for teaching the word of God. This word here, just one other note here on this, because once we leave this passage, we won't come back to it for a little bit. So just a couple more minutes here. This also is a reminder of this, that the, the job of the elder shepherd is a temporary one. Nobody's shepherding in heaven other than Jesus Christ. And the role is a temporary one. So be faithful with the role that you have. Lastly is this, the future reward. The future reward, what does it say? The chief shepherd is going to re- appear. There'll be an accounting. And you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Elders can shepherd with confidence, knowing that they will receive the reward when Christ returns. The unfading crown of glory. This is a, a crown that is given. At, it's awarded at games for victory. I think even here it's in the midst of, of one that's talking about crowning after a struggle crowning after victorious achievement, crowning after faithfulness. And this is what is given to those who faithfully ran the play, faithfully did what God has asked them to do. And this is what we endeavor to do here at our church with our elders. Let me just say this, all right? We're not perfect. We're not. We're imperfect people trying to do our very best, trying not to fumble. <laughs> and you guys, I can tell you this, you guys bring us such joy. You really do. 
You guys are a joy to be with. And I'm so thankful for each one of you as I see Dave right here in the same way. We, we love you guys, but we're not perfect. And you guys are going to hold us accountable as much as we're going to hold you accountable. That's what the family of God does. We're not a business. I have no desire to be a CEO. I would be a terrible one. I'm too nice. I would just be horrible at it. But we want to faithfully shepherd because we understand that we're under shepherds to the chief shepherd. And we want to do our very, very best in doing so. And we have a genuine love and care for you. And God has called a play. We've broke the huddle. And we're just going to run it. You say, what's the next play? The same as the first one. Why would we ever change it? What's the third play? What's third down? We're going to run on third down. The same play. It's fourth and 99. What are we going to do? The same play. <laughs> we're just going to keep running it over and over and over and over again. Until when? The chief shepherd appears. And we all get to go into glory, and we actually get to be with the perfect shepherd at that point. Jesus Christ. One more thing for you guys to chew on. Verse 5, and then we'll be done. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm only going to read it. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. I mention this only because it's true. A true statement that possibly and potentially the younger are those who would be the first to not be subject to the elders, who would want to get ahead of the elders. But there's clarity here on understanding that, and next week we'll talk about that because we're talking about humility. So lecture this week, oh, humility next week. Oh, boy, we all need some of that, right? All right, it only works. It only works with humility. Right? And that's why he goes straight to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. A lot in here, a lot to digest, a lot to chew on. Uh, Lord, what a, what, a, what a reminder, Lord, that you, not only did you establish the church, you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for your church. The church means a lot to you because your son died for it, shed his own blood for it. And you've established and commissioned and appointed leaders to come alongside and, and to give oversight and leadership to the church so that we could all grow in Christ together, so we'd be strengthened together, so we can do the work of the ministry together, so we can love and care for one another. And I pray, Lord, that this church, Redemption Hill Bible Church, would be a reflection of the church that you died for. We'd be a reflection of a church that runs the play, that uses the blueprint that you've established for us, and we build off of that, the foundation being Jesus Christ, and simply under shepherds to the good shepherd, caring for the flock of God as you have entrusted it to us. Lord, I'm so thankful that every week we get to be together. What a joy. And what a privilege. Lord, I pray as we, we close our time and we sing this, this last song that we would one last time today sing with all of our heart with true thankfulness that you are our good shepherd. You are the one who leads us. You are the one who's called us. You're the one who protects us. You're the one who feeds us. And we're so thankful for that. And we look forward to the day when you come back 
and we get to be with you in glory. In Jesus' name, amen.